0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: The FT. After the crisis, the war, a currency war to be precise, or what is shaping up to become one unless action is taken to stop it, What can regulators do to stop countries from using competitive devaluations to boost their exports and economic growth? We also have the latest on the plight of the Chilean miners. Will they be freed soon? It's beginning to look so. And we also look at Amsterdam, where the spliff-friendly café, beloved of many a curious tourist, may soon be more strictly regulated. Has pot tourism had its day? You're listening to World Weekly with me, David Gardner, standing in this week for Gideon Rackman. I'm joined in the studio by Michael Steen and by Alan Beatty from Washington. In war, there are no winners, unless it's a currency war, where a quick devaluation can work wonders for one country, or even a group of countries. But it's a dangerous, zero-sum game that once it starts is very hard to stop. Alan Beatty, our international economics editor, is in Washington. Alan, you've just come from an IMF meeting. What's the mood in Washington on this? Just a few weeks ago, we had Brazil's finance minister saying the currency wars were on. How seriously is this threat being taken?
2: I'd say the mood here is kind of tense. I mean, we're not in a currency war at the moment. As Monique strauss the IMF managing director, um, said this morning that maybe currency war was, was a bit too strong an expression to use, though, of course, um, he did say he'd then used it himself. Um, but there's certainly a lot of conflict going on. I mean, the U.S., which has been putting lots of pressure on China to raise its exchange rates, and really this is largely a, bilateral, um, uh, it's like largely a bilateral row between the U.S. and China, with other countries occasionally joining in. And the U.S. regards that Chinese um, revaluation as a central part, really, of rebalancing the global economy, whereas China says actually it's more to do with the U.S. Uh, fiscal deficit and that the U.S. needs to put its own house in order before it lectures other countries.
1: Yeah. Do the Chinese have a point here? I mean, their own uh, manipulation, a loaded word, but of, of the currency is reasonably well rehearsed. But if they were to say, as I believe they do, that, for example, quantitative quantitative easing by the US and the UK has a similar effect. Do they have a point?
2: It can have a similar effect, yes. It, it sort of depends how those actions within domestic money markets and domestic bond markets spill out into the global economy. But I think quantitative easing, though it has that effect, is not directly aimed at shifting the exchange rate. So although it might it might turn out to be the same in practice, um, it's, not, it's not really... Um, with the same intent. And certainly, if every central bank in the world starts doing quantitative easing, that certainly means that monetary conditions around the world become looser, there will be an overall boost to the world economy. Whereas if every single central bank in the world tries to intervene against their own currency, you might end up essentially exactly where you were.
1: This so far appears to be a sort of shootout between the US and China uh its main creditor, as it were, with two and a half trillion uh stockpile of, 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 of dollars. Who's being caught in the crossfire and what other countries are following in China's wake to mix a metaphor? What other countries a- apart from you know, Taiwan, Japan and so on, are also intervening to, to, to devalue their currency?
2: Well, I think those, currencies, those countries which have suffered most are the other emerging markets which have fairly freely floating currencies, such as Brazil with the real. Um, there's a lot of hot money flowing around the global economy at the moment looking for yield because interest rates in the developed economy are so low. And so it's surging into emerging markets. And so if you're a country like Brazil, your exchange rate is going up anyway. Um, because China relatively, because China is holding its exchange rate down, and now you've got all this capital surging into your economy. So you can either let the exchange rate carry on going up and carry on making your industry even more uncompetitive, or you can start intervening yourself. Now, Brazil has not done that much so far, but as you suggested, other countries in East Asia certainly have. I mean, countries like South Korea, although they deny intervening to to hold down their currency have certainly been accumulating foreign exchange reserves at quite a big rate. So essentially what China is doing presents, uh, presents countries in the middle with a dilemma. They can either try and hold down their own currencies, which might have the effect um, of boosting inflation within their economy, or they can let them rise and make their industries uncompetitive.
1: So at the, at these meetings currently underway, the IMF, the World Bank, the G20 and so on, is there any serious prospect whatsoever of the broader issue of global imbalances being seriously addressed?
2: I mean, it will be seriously talked about, but I think there are two problems here. One is no country particularly wants to be the first to move and to take actions um, before it's seen what the others are doing. And second, I think the problem is that countries have a fundamentally different analysis of what is wrong. As I suggested before, China just doesn't accept that its actions on its exchange rate are having a big effect on global imbalances, whereas the U.S. says they're absolutely essential. So this isn't just a question of getting countries to cooperate. It's actually getting a question of getting one country to change its policies. Um, if that does happen, I certainly don't think it's going to happen over the next 72 hours.
1: Alan, thank you very much indeed. It's been two months since 33 Chilean miners were stuck 700 metres underground after a mine accident. and The world has been captivated by their plight. But it seems possible that this weekend they may finally be released. Jude Webber, our correspondent in the region, spoke earlier to Helen Worrell from the World News Desk.
3: Jude, I suppose the first question is that the original estimate, when we first heard about the story of these trapped miners, was that they may be out around Christmas time. So, why the sudden change, and why do you think they might be out this weekend?
0: Well, first of all, I mean we're not sure that it will definitely be this weekend. There are there there are some considerations still to be um, to be finalised. Um, the officials, what they say is that things have just progressed more swiftly than they expected. They've they've really pulled out all the stops. They've not just had one rescue plan. They've had three rescue plans going at the same time. They've, drew, they've, been, they've been drilling three separate tunnels down to the men. Uh, the first tunnel is, is basically a narrow one, which they're then going to widen if they do need to use that one. The second one is the one that will be used because it's almost down to where the men are and it's the right width. And the third one was a different plan, which... Um, which isn't progressing very quickly, so that probably won't be won't uh, won't won't um, be used in any way. Um, but it, it's not really clear why they've managed to uh, to go just much faster. I think they've just been lucky that the equipment hasn't broken down and uh, they've been going at it day and night.
3: Well, one suggestion that I've heard is that this is linked to the fact that uh, the Chilean president Sebastián Piñera is off on a trip to europe soon and he's very keen that the miners should be rescued while he's still in the country what do you think about that idea
0: well i think i mean it's 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 very clear that he wants to be there um when the miners are rescued for two reasons obviously um he wants to to be seen you know he it's it's good publicity for him but i think really the the government's handling of the mine rescue has been exemplary there have been no real criticisms that i've heard the mining minister has has, by all accounts, been seen to to be doing a fantastic job, and um, and I think Pinera obviously wants to cash in on that for for popularity reasons, and also but also for genuine personal reasons. The whole country, the whole of Chile, really was extremely moved when the news came out um, after the men had been trapped for almost three weeks that they were still alive, that they were in a a refuge underneath in the mine. And um, and he he was genuinely moved, I think. And so I think there there are both personal and political reasons. Uh, The latest that I heard from one government spokesman this week for a a sort of a tentative date was the 12th, although the man in charge of the mine rescue, um, the engineer in charge of the the technical aspects of the rescue, who has been generally a little bit more cautious, he's been saying the 16th to the 17th. Uh, which would be when Mr Piñera isn't there. So, I mean, the dates are still not clear yet. What's going to determine the date is the engineers have to decide whether or not they're going to put a metal lining into the tunnel to to strengthen it. Um, And the engineers have said that they can't take that decision until until they've finished the drilling, uh, which will probably be in the next couple of days.
3: The miners have... Been down there in this, uh, living in this very small space for just over two months now. Do we have informa- any information at all, about how they're bearing up?
0: Well, the government officials are saying that they're they're doing well. There were reports um, a few weeks ago that some of the men were suffering from depression, and uh, and officials have been have confirmed that they were, but they've also said they've been treated and that they've they've gone beyond that now and that they're better. I think we won't know the full extent of, of their um their real sort of psychological health until they until they emerge. I think in terms of um of just general fitness, I think they they're eating now and there there have been no serious illnesses um while they're down there. Uh, one of the minors and i think uh, I think one of his relatives was diabetic, and so he got used to looking after them that that relative and to giving injections so he's been the sort of designated mind nurse, and they're obviously being uh, monitored very very carefully by health experts uh from, from the government and, and the government's doing an awful lot to make sure that they're in good condition.
3: Well, one thing we've heard is that um, while down in the mine, the miners are actually receiving some media training. Is this in anticipation of a press storm when, when they are rescued?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it is, I think it's, It's already getting crazier by the day at the mine head, and uh, obviously, as the as the days towards the rescue approach, it's going to get madder and madder. There are already, um, I think, hundreds of media organisations, or or journalists, or television crews, um, cameramen, photographers, what have you, all at the mine, Um, and it's it's getting. Uh, it's getting busier by the day. All the world's media want a picture of the men and want to know what, what it was like. So they have been receiving media training, but I'm not yet sure how um, how much access there will be to the men. I think the officials will be taking enormous uh, steps to protect them from the media, to shield them. And and there will also be um, very practical considerations, like their their eyesight. I mean, they've been underground in the dark or very dim light for more than two months now. Um, and they will be coming up... And they'll be wearing special glasses uh, to protect their eyes from the light. But they will obviously—I uh, think—their exposure to to sunlight and to presumably to the media and dazzling um, cameras and and um, flash bulbs and things like that will will obviously have to be limited for their own health. Uh, but that's not going to stop the media. I mean, I think the, the mine is going to be mobbed as the as the days towards the rescue go.
1: That was Jude Weber in Buenos Aires speaking earlier to Helen Worrell ahead of her visit to Chile. You can follow Jude's reports from the mine this weekend in the paper and online. Finally, dope fiends heading for the smoke-filled cafes of Amsterdam, the ones which sell cannabis legally, may become off-limits to tourists. This appears to be part of a complicated deal whereby... Two centre-right parties seeking an agreement, a, a, a parliamentary majority from the anti-Islam Freedom Party for an otherwise minority government, uh, want to make arrangements on everything from budget cuts to banning the burka. And as part of that, will turn these cafes into membership clubs, members-only clubs. Michael Steen now one of our news editors, but previously our Amsterdam correspondent is with me. Michael, what's all this about?
4: Well, um, as you rightly point out, this is the result of a deal that's been done to try and form a government. The, the election mm-hmm. was uh, in June and they, they, they still haven't quite formed the government. Actually, as of today, still do not have one. We're still a good week away or so mm-hmm. before swearing in. But um, indeed, the the, the the anti-Islamic party of Kheer um made a series of law and order demands um to to please their um the, the, their their base supporters and one of which was this on on, on coffee shops um interestingly it, it's not one that you're going to see a great amount of um protest about um that the coffee shop owners obviously will be displeased um but let's face it, um, the, the, the kind of tourists who are affected uh, neither have a vote in the Netherlands uh, and, and nor do they, they particularly um, rank highly amongst the, the tourist board's um, most uh, favoured guests of the city. Um, however, it, it will, of course, have an effect when, when this filters through to the the hen and stag parties um, who, who go to Amsterdam for those reasons. Is this part of a pattern whereby
1: Amsterdam in particular and, and the Netherlands in general is becoming uh, slowly a more illiberal place?
4: Um, yes, except what I might take issue there with is the question of whether it was ever really that liberal. Um, one of the interesting things about the Netherlands is it very successfully has this, um, this, this uh, image of being incredibly liberal. Um, and in fact... plenty of people argue that it never really was it was always just incredibly pragmatic so you have the 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 legalization of prostitution um the the decriminalization of soft drugs um for for purely practical reasons which are we're going to have these problems anyway so let's control them put them in a box um we know where they are then and then the rest of us can get on with our law-abiding lives um This is obviously not immediately apparent to a visitor to Amsterdam or Rotterdam um, because the big cities do have a a liberal feel to them. But um, there are great swathes of the country where um, you you can't do so much as use a a bank machine on a Sunday in the so-called Bible Belt. So it's a country that that, that does have a very strong conservative hinterland. Um, And I think that that has become more prominent in the last few years indeed.
1: So another instance of pragmatism in this case, the mainstream parties supping with the devil of the Freedom Party.
4: Indeed, yes, okay. um, but not without controversy. That um, there've there been um, the, the the mainstream uh, Christian Democrat party, which is a, a, a centre right party, uh, already lost one very uh, prominent member who was um, the the former health minister who who said who point blank said. I cannot put up with this, um, and and walked away. Um, and the party has now had to hold a party congress to um, agree on this deal with uh, the the anti-Islamic um, Freedom Party of Kjell Vilders. Um, and even even under those terms, there are still two MPs who are publicly critical of Mr. Wilders and who've they, they've agreed that they will go along with this um, this, this, this this deal, governing deal, mm-hmm. the program. But they've said they will not be silent on, um, on issues where they feel uh, Mr. Vilders is going too far.
1: Michael, thank you very much indeed. Well, that's it for this week. Many thanks to Alan Beatty in Washington, Jude Webber and Helen Worrell and Michael Steen in the studio. Well, Weekly was produced by Rob Minto. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com
3: forward slash podcasts.